We're back. We're speaking with Michael Krasny, talk show host and author of Off Mic, a memoir of talk radio and literary life. Uh, in reading your book, it sort of stirred memories from a long uh, time ago about someone I hadn't thought of uh, as a small boy. I remember seeing this guy used to be on TV, Al Jasbo Collins. He used to play a clip from Treasure of the Sierra Madre and <laughs> swear people in about bodges. We don't need no stinking bodges. I didn't know what it was all about, but I thought this guy was a real character, and I imagine he must have been to work with. Well, he was, and everybody remembers him for the stinking badges or just for the for the uh, sort of pleasant manner he had on the air. He had a he had good what we call good pipes in radio. He had a very deep and resonant voice, and people liked to listen to him. The the thing about Jasbo was, and I say this, you know, recognizing the fact that he was a likable man and and, and uh, a sweet man, was he talked about nothing. I mean, it was it was one of the most extraordinary things that I've certainly ever witnessed in the talk trade. Because he would go on the air, and there would be no preparation, no concern or interest in news topics. People would just call, and they would, you know, they say Seinfeld is a show about nothing. Jasbo's radio talk shows were talk about nothing. And, and people would call in, and somehow they would talk, and he would talk. And uh, it wouldn't necessarily go in any kind of direction. There was no focus to it. There was no, what I referred to before as topicating, that is getting the topics into play and stirring things up. He would just go on, and, and he had a following. He had a lot of truckers up and down the West Coast who would call him and like to talk to him and tell him about what they were toting and uh, talk about their health and you know their, their new kids that were just born. And uh, It was pretty mundane, and it was clear that Jasbo wasn't going to last as KGO moved more and more toward trying to provide some staple of at least talk talk, news talk, or as they call themselves, talk about things that are current. Well, when you parted company with KGO, there was a lot of ink about it at the time. It wasn't clear why uh, why they were moving away from you. And in and, and truth, Off Mike doesn't really provide a clear answer to, to what went down. Is, is, is that because it's really impossible to know what management was thinking? I think so. But, you know, through the years, I've heard a lot of feedback from people on the inside. Uh, somebody uh, recently who knows these things and knows them pretty well said, I think you were just too intelligent for them. And I don't know that that's really a fair assessment. But in their minds, uh, maybe too intellectual would be a better word, because there certainly are intelligent people doing work on KGO still to this day, and there were then. Maybe I was a little too scholarly or bookish for them. They were going for young demographics. They were thinking they had to be sensationalizing and tabloidizing. This was the new regime. And I think that it proved to be a failure. I mean, there's, there's, there's no surefire way to get young demographics, and certainly it's not by necessarily trying to put in a lot of sex and a lot of sensationalism or a lot of uh, the sort of stuff that they were thinking would be a magnet for younger listeners, especially young male listeners whom they wanted desperately uh, more and more of, big numbers from, and they just didn't see me bringing in that kind of listenership. So it was, it was all that, but it was also, you know, me to some extent. I thought, geez, I've been here a number of years, I should get more than a pittance of a raise. I felt beholden to the fact that I had a family and a mortgage and wanted to see if I could get more money, not hold them up. You know, it wasn't like trying to be A-Rod or anything, but I thought I could certainly get more compensation and thought I was deserving of it. And a lot of things conspired against me. Uh, I had one bad ratings book, which usually doesn't mean anything, but it did because I was asking for more money. And in fact, the irony is the next ratings, in fact, it was Lee Rogers who said, your next ratings book will be high, I guarantee you, and it was, but by that time I was gone, and it was actually one of my highest ratings books. These things just used to go up and down. It was a crazy system, algorithmically, that was nonsensible, 
but KTO was very hungry for those young demographics, and I think they just didn't see me as someone who was going to pull in the young demographic. Well, we should note for the historical record, you moved on to KQED, and soon we're beating out uh, your old station in the ratings, and that, that must have felt pretty good. It felt better than I could tell you. <laughs> and, and also, I would second the notion here that in your book, you don't seem to really uh, have any you know, sharpened knives for anyone uh, in, in your past, but you did quote uh, the manager at KGO that said, well, he was questioned about why you left. He said, well, you just were unprepared. And I think anyone who listens to you knows that you do your homework before an interview, and that, that must have been irksome. Well, it was more than irksome. It really uh, angered me at the time. And now I put things into perspective. This was the general manager at KGO who was in charge of things, but who was really in some ways not all that connected with what was going on. And somehow he got it into his head. He was right about one thing. He, He told me that I didn't like to read commercials, and that's true, I didn't. But he was certainly dead wrong about the lack of preparation because, you know, they could put on my tombstone like the Boy Scouts, he was prepared, if anything, overly, anally, retentively prepared. And somehow, in a, in a public appearance, when someone asked him, why did uh, why did Michael Krasny get the axe at KGO, he said he just wasn't well enough prepared, which you know, I thought was so ludicrous and still do. I mean, it's almost funny, really. It's like, you know, somebody tells you you're... It's like if somebody would say that, uh, that I was a, a marsupial or something, you know, it's just so <laughs> far from the truth that doesn't even have any bearing or relevance to anything. Well, your specialty in interviews seems to be writers. Uh, probably the vast majority of people in off mic are, are the, um, the writers that you um, interviewed. But you note that writers, even the best writers, sometimes are not effective public speakers. Uh, you're, of course, involved with the spoken language and the written language as a professor of English. Can you talk a little bit about the two different English languages? Well, I discovered, and I discovered even more through the course of writing this book about the difference between the two. I wanted to be a writer. I felt that the written word, and as a literature professor, I valued it and felt it lasted and endured. And you know, you put spoken language out there, and it goes into the ether, and it just doesn't didn't seem to have the value to me. And and one of those things I think was devaluing myself because I'm better with spoken language than I am with written language. Although I like this book I've written, and I think it's written pretty well, but I think. What I wanted to be was a novelist, and I wanted to have the imagination that would create great art, literary art, and it simply isn't in me. Uh, So I discovered through the years, just lacking talent, really. So I found that my métier was more the spoken word, and that I was better with the spoken word. And I think that they are really different. There are some who are fortunate enough to be gifted at both. But that's pretty rare. I think that, you know, there is a gift of gab and there's a gift of telling a story or a gift of putting things down in in prose, narrative or otherwise, expository prose. And one of the reasons why there are a lot of writers in the book is because I see this oscillation between literature and life. I write about my life and then I and, and wanting to be a writer and then I give vignettes and portraits of different writers and world class writers, many of the best that are extant. There are portraits though of, of you know, scientists like uh James Watson and E.O. Wilson and politicians, uh, because I certainly interviewed my share of them, and ambassadors and really cultural figures, uh, people of all variety. So it's not just a book about writers, as some, I think, have mistakenly taken it because of the vignettes. Melded into the text are a lot of anecdotes and a lot of off-mic stories and so forth about many of the people I've been fortunate enough to have interviewed. But I do think and I've seen it through the years of my students. There are students who talk in class, for example, and express themselves very articulately and beautifully. and They write at best mediocre. And then you have students who write wonderfully, who are very shy or 
inarticulate or unable to express themselves verbally, and often there's that chasm. You, you mentioned other types of interviews, comics, entertainers. I'm sure uh, you interview quite a few of those. Are, are they the most fun to interview, and if they're not, who is? Well, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you'll get somebody who's a comedian on. I've, I've had some really funny comedians, but you get a comedian on, and they're not necessarily that funny. Uh, I, one of the funniest interviews I had was probably with Dame Edna, and <laughs> although actually Jackie Mason was funny too because he came in. I had seen him the night before in a live show, and I said, I was just amazed at how great your timing was. You must really work like an actor to get your timing right. And he said, this is the stupidest thing that anybody has ever said to me in my whole life, that I should have to train, that I should have to prepare like an actor. And he goes on like that, and then the interview's over, and I said, thank you so much. Uh, I really had a good, of course you had a good time. You didn't have to pay anything. You had me here for a whole hour. You know, very funny. Uh, and, you know, I've enjoyed some of the great comedians that I've, I've interviewed through the years, uh, names that are now part of yesteryear, to be sure, but also people who are still around, like Whoopi Goldberg and uh, uh, Robin Williams and so forth. I think, though, that sometimes when you've got a comedian, you, you at least I find, I want to find out what makes them tick, and that's a lot of what my interviewing is about. And you find that often comedians, as the old cliche or platitude would have it, can be very sad people, or you get behind their mask and you discover a whole different person. And that's challenging to me. That's something I like to do. I think that, you know, I've had people on the air who are very funny, who are not comedians, who are just regular cultural figures or politicians. I, I write about an interview with, in fact, with Watson and Wilson, two maybe of the greatest living scientists, the co-founder of the Double Helix with uh, Francis Crick, James Watson, and E.O. Wilson, who gave us biodiversity and two great Harvard professors, Miracle Minds. Did an interview with them at Gordon Moore's estate. This was off the air, but they were and they were hilarious. I mean, I thought they were doing shtick. Uh, it was very funny going back and forth and working off each other. We were talking about old age, and they were going to these visual pictures of people drooling, you know, on newspapers. And, um, it was it was a bit dark, but it was funny stuff. We're speaking with radio host Michael Krasny about his book Off Mike, a memoir of talk radio and literary life. You you had an especially uh, a vivid portrayal of interviewing Ken Kesey. That I think worth a little digression on. Now that was funny. That was that was actually something that, that happened that was very humorous. The story was that Kesey came on the air with me. I was a KGO, and we were both friendly with Paul Krasner, the editor of the Realist and the leader of the Yuppies, and a real character out of the '60s. And his name came up, and Kesey said, "I just visited him, and I'll tell you what happened." He said, "I called him." He was in Venice at the time. Paul lived out here as well in San Francisco and Northern California, but he was at the time living in Venice, California. And he said, I called him and I left a message, and the first message was, Paul, it's Louis, they're after us. And then he proceeded to leave messages that built uh, Paul, Louis, they've got guns and rifles. And it went up to even a different level. Paul, it's Louis, they got Uzis, they got hand grenades, you know, until he was talking about, you know, hydrogen bombs and jet propelled nuclear weaponry and so forth. So then he sees Krasner and he says, hey, did you get my messages? And Krasner says, what are you talking about? He said, all those messages from Louis And Krasner had no idea what he was talking about. It turned out, Kesey was dialing the wrong number and the digits were reversed. The last two digits were reversed. So he tells the story on the air and he says, well, when I told Krasner this, Krasner called that wrong number and actually got the person on the air who Kesey had been leaving these messages with and said, hi, this is Paul. Are there any messages for me? So it's a funny story, but... 
after the hour ends, Casey goes downstairs. And Casey was known for his pranks, you know, the merry pranksters and all that stuff, LSD area of the 60s. He goes downstairs, and I go into my topicating. Let's talk about, you know, whatever was in the news at the time, and we can talk about this, we can talk about that. The first call that comes from the shoot is, Mike, it's Louie, they're after us. This is Casey downstairs on the phone in the receptionist's office, you know, calling up. There was. I have to ask you about the toughest guest. For me, being a science major, I find that authors and artists are well, the toughest for me. What for you are the toughest guests? Well, scientists can be tough for me. It's not that I don't like science, because I do. But, you know, if I'm interviewing a physicist or someone who is um, certainly way out of my league scientifically, the challenge is how can I absorb this material and also make it palatable for a large audience and rely not only on my preparation but my own curiosity and make it work for a lay audience. And that can be challenging. But uh, I find the most difficult people to interview are people who are just not that forthcoming or who are overly reticent. Or, you know, I write about some of these people, David Byrne and Janet Malcolm, you know, who I've had teeth-pulling sessions with. Uh, I tell a story in there, which is actually kind of a poignant and funny story about Billy D. Williams, who was the black Clark Gable of his time. And he came on, and he was almost utterly non-communicative. And I was really trying. I was, you know, earning my pay, certainly. And finally, I just said, let's let callers come through. And one of the first callers said, you're being very reticent, Billy D. It seems like you're not talking. Is there something bothering you? And he said, my mother died yesterday. And you know, it was a very poignant, sad moment. And I thought, I'll take this to the next level. And I did. I asked him about his mother, and suddenly he became more voluble and more talkative. And talking about his mother, he was kind of giving us a picture of a saintly woman who had a big heart, gave money to people who needed it when she didn't have very much herself. And then another call comes through, and this caller says, I worked on The Empire Strikes Back out at Lucasfilms, and Billy Dee was very kind to us, unlike many of the other actors. She didn't name names or anything, but she, you know, you'd imagine it was in that movie. And I said to him, because I had a kind mother too, and I think I'm a kind person, and I said, you know, you're your mother's son. And he started sobbing. And it was just one of those, you know, really... It, it had gone from a very difficult interview with a guy who I thought was just simply closed off to a guy who's opening up the, you know, uh, waterworks and, and crying on the air. Yeah. Of course, the irony of this story and the coda to it is when I got off the air, I got one of these calls on the listener call-in line saying, you made Billy D cry. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's my fault. Uh, but anyway, uh, it was very moving. In, in, in off mic, you lament. Uh, in repeatedly, really, that you've not produced a literary work of greatness. But uh, I'm not an English major, but I associate great writing with authors who isolated themselves from their daily cares, and they delved sort of within themselves. You've got two full-time jobs, English professor and talk show host. So my question is, how could you possibly isolate yourself and be, in, in, in effort to follow uh, people like Saul Bellow? Well, I did for years. I mean, before um, I started working in radio, I was pretty isolated, and I was trying desperately to get out a novel that I assumed had to be in me and that, you know, would be a novel that was worthwhile to give birth to to the world. I discovered, as you suggest by the question that you asked, that I'm much better with people. I'm much better when I'm not isolated, that, you know, I'm, I'm not cut out for the writer's life like I thought I was. And it is a pretty lonely and isolated life. You know, I've interviewed enough writers to know that many of them find it almost a relief when they can go out and promote a book because they've been secluded for so long and reclusive for so long. I like interacting with people, and I enjoy what I do on the air, and I enjoy interacting with students in the classroom, and I'm 
more of what used to be in Hackney language called a people person. So this is a book of self-discovery, and I think I had to sit down and write this book to discover a lot of those things and discover maybe who I really am or my own identity, which is something we're all looking for and all seeking and trying to discover. Well, Forum is huge in the Bay Area. It's it's also on KQEI here in Sacramento. You're, you're also carried on the Sirius Satellite Network. You reach a lot of people. But I noticed in the book you, you, you pondered the matter of what effect you really are having, I mean, really, on people. And do you think talk radio is overrated in how it affects lives? Because many people regard it as a major force in America. Well, I think it is a major force. Uh, and, I, and I like to think that certainly the work that we do every day has a major impact on people. But there's major impact and then there's major impact. Do we shape the way people see events and the way they see particularly political schemas of one sort or another? Yes. Do we expand consciousness? Yes. Do we make people more empathic? I hope so. But when you're talking about the impact on a day-to-day level, it's one thing very different than when you're talking about like a long-term impact or an impact, well, for lack of better language, on people's souls. And I don't, I'm not trying to be, you know, a man of the cloth here or anything else, but I do grapple with that question. How much do we really, in the work we do, affect people in the long run and on the whole sense of, you know, the inner life and, and the kind of people that uh, you hope good citizens and, and responsible good people are uh, intent on becoming. When I say that in, in the book that I wrestle with this whole question of how should a good man live, it's I still think I'm a work in progress. And part of that work has to do with my work. It has to do with public service work. But how far you can extend that and how far that goes is very difficult to measure. You can't really, in fact, uh, I think it's something that, that most teachers go through, too, because basically I'm an educator, whether it's on the airways or in the classroom. And artists wrestle with it as well. What kind of impact do you really ultimately have, and how do you quantify that, and how do you measure that? And I think it's a, it's a perennial big question mark. Well, the final addendum to that, that question mark, I want to note a kick I got out of the story that you told in the book about uh, how your mom and dad were bragging to their friends because you had had on Alex Trebek, and they were big Jeopardy fans. So it must be funny to contemplate what about your work impresses people. Sometimes it's the people I have on. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, with these book parties now and book signings, uh, people coming out who are big fans and all, it, it's been very gratifying because what I'm hearing is that they're not so much impressed, but that people are, well, some are impressed with my memory, my knowledge, things like that, that I, I bring to the table. But also the, the civic nature and the, and the quality of the work I do, and that is, is extremely gratifying. When people come up to me and they say, you're a major part of my life, you know, I listen to you all the time, uh, I find I learn so much from you, there are a few things that are more gratifying. The book is Off Mike, a memoir of talk radio and literary life. We've been speaking with author Michael Krasny. Thank you very much for speaking with Mr. Krasny. Thank you for having me. I just want to note in going that uh, the late Molly Ivins told you, you reported in the book, that journalists get the audience they deserve, and noting that your audience was the best. And as a member of that audience, I, I'd like to just second the notion. That's very kind and much appreciated. All right, that about does it for time on today's program. It's been our great pleasure to interview Michael Krasny on this program. We've been uh, been an admirer dating back a couple of decades, long before I ever had any idea I'd be trying to do this a uh, little bit of this myself. 
This program was produced by Edward McMillan. On next week's show, we'll be joined by someone else we've admired for quite a long time. This would be Gordon Uncle John Javna, the brains behind the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. The Uncle John series is celebrating its triumphant 20th anniversary this year. We have certainly quoted from it extensively in the past. And on next week's show, we may uh, we may re-air one of our favorite uh, segments. That was our discussion of the Gimli Glider, as described in Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>